0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Big Bad Boris on YouTube, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, The Young Turks, On the Media, Counterspin, and Talk Poverty Radio.
1: These days, a lot of people think you've got to be a billionaire to buy a candidate. At Congressman's Warehouse, we believe that millionaires deserve quality candidates, too. We respect your dark money, no matter what denomination it comes in. At Congressman's Warehouse, you get to design your own candidate, limited government, tax and spend, preemptive strike, lead from behind, gun control, open carry. All the latest styles at prices you can afford. Choose from climate change deniers, Second Amendment fetishists, Wall Street deregulators, draft dodging warmongers, transvaginal ultrasoundists, and this week only, save on cisgendered restroom traditionalists. At Congressman's Warehouse, we don't waste your money on image consultants and handlers. We tailor your dyed-in-the-wool candidates directly to your agenda and pocketbook. You're going to like the way they vote. I guarantee it.
2: Buy my vote. Buy my vote. Buy my vote. Buy my vote. Well, now that you're a person, I'd like to have a chat
3: Our main story tonight concerns political fundraising. And before you roll your eyes, this is not going to be about how money corrupts presidential candidates. For that, uh, you can read much more on your most annoying friend's Facebook posts. (laughs) Dan, that is a comment on a picture of a baby. What the f*** is wrong with you? Take it down. I would like to talk instead about congressional fundraising, which is much less covered, but no less astonishing. In the 2014 election cycle, candidates for the House and Senate raised a combined $1.7 billion. That's a lot of money. That's more than it costs to buy 230 million tubes of hemorrhoidal cooling gel. And it's somehow even more upsetting. Now, now... Interestingly, much of that money has to be raised one way or another by the politicians themselves, which they have complained about for years and and say that it can be the worst part of their job.
4: You know, I hated raising money.
1: Hated it. It's painful, frankly, Uh, to continually ask people for money.
5: If Don and I could tell you how many hours we spend With our good colleagues on our side of the issues talking about raising money, it would be an
3: embarrassment. Because it is an embarrassment. Wow, an embarrassment. That is a strong statement. Although he may be overestimating Congress's capacity for embarrassment. Because bear in mind, we are talking about a place where these moments happened. Do you like green eggs and ham? (laughs) I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not
6: like green eggs and ham. Two bits, four bits... Six bits a dollar, all for the Gators. Stand up and holler. Go Gators. Meet
5: the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and
7: greet the Mets. Don't know much about chemistry. Don't know much toxicology. Don't know what's ammonium nitrate. Except it's easy to detonate. But I do know that IST was used to increase our
2: security. What a much safer world this could be. Don't know much about Gasperine.
3: Oh my God! What is most shocking about that last clip is that he read the room and decided, you know what? I think they want to hear another verse. I think think I'm going to do another verse here. I'm reading this room and I'm doing it. But the sheer amount of time politicians spend fundraising is not just embarrassing, it's horrifying. Some say that members can spend anywhere from 25 to 50% of their time on it. But former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle once guessed that in the two years before an election, senators can spend two-thirds of their time raising money. And if two-thirds of the work you do is strictly about the money, you're not a legislator, you're Robert De Niro at that point. (laughs) So, so tonight... Tonight, let's look at where that time actually goes. And let's begin with the most obvious form of fundraising, fundraisers. These are usually shitty parties in DC bars, restaurants, or townhouses. And there are a lot of them. The Sunlight Foundation estimates that in the last election cycle, members of Congress held over 2,800 fundraisers. Washington is like Rod Stewart's haircut. Party in the front party in the back. (laughs) Frankly, too much party and no business anywhere to be found. (laughs) Fundraiser's are so ubiquitous in D.C., you could conceivably construct a whole day around them, which is exactly what former Iowa representative Bruce Braley did on September 20th, 2012, when at 8.30 a.m. he held a fundraising breakfast, followed at noon by a fundraising lunch, and ending with a fundraising evening reception. And by that time, he was less a member of Congress than he was a sentient storage container for canapes. (laughs) In fact... Fundraisers are such an integral part of DC's economy, some restaurants derive a decent chunk of their income just from hosting them. Look at Johnny's Half Shell. It's a seafood restaurant just blocks from the Capitol. In the past ten years, a whopping 948 congressional fundraisers have been held there. It is almost inevitable that your elected representative will have spent at least some time in a place that markets itself thusly. Here's to
2: the champagne and the oysters at Johnny's. Here's to Johnny's crab cakes. Here's to the flyers at happy
8: hour. Here's to the hard shell crabs at Johnny's half shell on the terrace.
2: Here's, Here's to Johnny. Johnny.
9: Here's to you and your time at Johnny's half shell.
3: <laughs> He's... Is- he is a significant figure in DC. Influential decisions are being made under the watchful eye of a man who looks like John Bon Jovi's less talented step cousin, Jim Banjavi. So. Some politicians even turned their own personal milestones into fundraising opportunities, like Republican Andy Barr, who held a 41st birthday fundraiser, which cost a minimum of $500 per person to attend. Or there's Florida Representative Ileana ross who t- who turned her 30th wedding anniversary into a fundraiser, an event that is almost breathtaking in its sadness. Because a 30th wedding anniversary should not be about raising political capital. It should be about eating a largely silent dinner, killing two bottles of wine, (laughs) forgetting to have sex and falling asleep to a friends rerun. (laughs) Honour the anniversary and do it right! And in perhaps the most pathetic bid for hipness available, many members of Congress will even stage fundraisers at pop concerts.
8: The power of Taylor Swift not only changes the music business, it makes money, and so much so that some of Washington's elites are capitalizing on the Pop princess's 1989 tour, which
0: stops over in D.C. tonight. We have over ten Republicans, five Democrats, three PACs, all raising money off this Taylor Swift concert. Tickets going into thousands upon thousands of dollars. Some of these members we spoke to, specifically Representative Byer of Virginia, who's having a fundraiser, he goes, his daughter
3: turned him on to Taylor Swift. He likes her feminist lyrics, and that is why they're moving forward. It's true. Representative Don Beyer held a fundraiser at a Taylor Swift concert. And I don't know about you, but this man is not feeling 22. (laughs) He is feeling and looking very much 65. But, But amazingly, all of this is glamorous compared to the hours and hours that politicians spent fundraising over the phone. A few years ago, a PowerPoint presentation from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to freshman lawmakers leaked. And it was showing their model schedule, which suggested four hours a day of call time. Four hours on the phone. The only time that makes sense is if you're trying to have phone sex with Sting. (laughs) Have you come yet? It's been three hours. Have you come yet? I've got stuff to do, Gordon. This can't be my day. And look... Horrendously. <laughs> Lawmakers have even been pulled out of hearings to go do that call time.
10: The first week I was down here, we were having a committee hearing in education. And my chief of staff at that time came in and said, you have to leave. You know, and we went into the ante room and I said, where do I have to go? And she goes, you have to go make phone calls. And I looked at her and I went, this is my first hearing and you're coming in and asking me to leave? How am I going to learn anything?
3: Exactly. She was a rookie
10: legislator.
3: She, she needed to learn how to do her job. The Knicks don't pull rookie Kristaps Porzingis out of a game so he can go make cold calls to season ticket holders, because <laughs> that would not be the best use of Kristaps Porzingis' time. <laughs> and, and if you think that sounds like a dehumanizing process, rest assured it is.
7: I felt used when I had to go raise money, I was
1: embarrassed. I thought it was ugly, I thought it was demeaning. My staff kept saying, you gotta go do it, I said, I don't like it. You get a Rolodex and you get to go outside the building for a whole day and dial numbers of jerks you've
7: never heard of in your whole life (laughs) to get money out of them. He's absolutely
3: right. If you want to get money out of a bunch of jerks you've never heard of before, you shouldn't have to call them on the phone when you can simply open a vape shop. Boom. (laughs) Done. Done. And and if you're wondering why he said he had to go outside the building, that's because according to federal law, members of Congress can't solicit or receive donations in their offices. So, each party's congressional committee has set up call rooms in their party headquarters, just a few blocks from the Capitol. We couldn't find any footage from inside those rooms, but they sound pretty grim. They've got cubicles, and they've got a headset, and they often have a minder who sort of sits at their shoulder and makes sure
6: that they don't take too long on each call. They say that the building can really start to stink after a while. After a few hours, it starts to smell like a locker room.
3: Yeah, but but what do you expect? Half the people in that room probably spent their morning slurping down oysters in an 80s hockey player's sweaty crab shack. And just about all lawmakers have to do this, even those like Eleanor Holmes Norton, in ludicrously safe seats. She regularly gets re-elected with over 80% of the vote, but despite that, roughly six years ago, she wound up leaving this voicemail for a lobbyist.
1: I was, uh, frankly, uh, surprised to see that we don't have a record, so far as I can tell, of your having given to me, despite my uh, long and deep uh, work, in fact, it's been my major work, uh, (laughs) on the committee and subcommittee has been essentially in your sector. I'm simply candidly calling to ask for a contribution.
3: That is so depressing to hear, even before you think about her calling from a room filled with the odour of Steny Hoyer's shrimp burps. (laughs) (laughs) And, And remember, her seat is safe. It's so safe she barely needs campaign funds for herself. The problem is, members are still expected to pay dues to their own party, which can then be distributed to candidates in tougher races. BuzzFeed actually got its hands on a DCCC spreadsheet two years ago, showing the amount of money the committee expects each member to pay, with figures ranging from $125,000 at the low end, all the way up to $800,000 at the top. So, is it any wonder that politicians are hitting up their customer base harder than a Girl Scout with gambling debts? Oh, <laughs> two, two boxes of Samoas? Nah, nah, f*** that. F- that. Four boxes. Four boxes are I walk. Four boxes. You get four boxes. I know where you live. Four <laughs> And if you are desperately trying to rack up dollars, that can affect the kind of people that you are targeting on the phone, as Senator Chris Murphy explains.
7: For a Senate race, I'm not calling anybody who doesn't have the chance of giving me at least $1,000. So you've got to imagine that the people I'm calling, you know, are folks that are, you know, making a half a million to a million dollars. And, you know, uh, they have fundamentally different problems than, uh, everybody, uh, than everybody else. And
3: that is a huge problem because it cannot help but affect the way you see the world if you're only calling donors rich enough that their main concerns are estate taxes or which Belgian kimono their cats will wear that day. That's that's a good choice though. But, but, but to be fair, now to be fair, direct fundraising by candidates is just one part of a system that also includes super PACs and so-called dark money. Although, to be even fairer, it is still the largest part. And, and regulating campaign finance is going to be difficult. For a start, there's the Supreme Court's 1976 Buckley versus Vallejo decision, which basically held that spending money is a form of speech. And sure, there are times when that's probably true. For example, a 50-year-old man spending money on a convertible is loudly saying, ''I would like to sexually disappoint a woman half my age.'' <laughs> He's, and, and we're hearing him loud and clear. He's being heard. But but a bigger problem is that while both sides agree they hate this, neither wants to unilaterally back down first. It's basically a Cold War, but worse. Because at least in the real Cold War, we got a trip to the moon and the third best Rocky villain out of it. (laughs) Which is not to say that there are not some attempts to address parts of the problem. Democrats have pushed the Disclose Act. Uh, which would force more transparency on dark money. And uh, one Republican congressman has something called the Stop Act, which would prohibit members of of Congress from personally asking for donations. But those would be very small fixes. Now, a larger idea is perhaps the Governments by the People Act, which would give tax credits and provide public funding for candidates by matching small donations at a ratio of at least six to one. But before you get too excited about that idea, two slight caveats. First, we asked and it would cost an estimated $500 million a year, which is a lot. And second, GovTrack.us, which offers predictions on whether bills are likely to pass, gives it a 0% chance in our current Congress. Just flat zero. Which kind of makes you wonder if they try to find something more harsh than zero, like negative zero, or oh hell zero, or just a zero with a frowny face in it.
11: We're starting to sit in here at the Capitol. We got hundreds, thousands of people, all these people prepared to be arrested. Our
2: government. our country, our house. We're tired of the corruption. We're tired of the corruption. Here's what we want. Here's what we want.
5: Free. Free. And fair. And fair. Election. Election. I think this is amazing. Uh, two moments that really struck me is when we saw the cops line up. People kept asking me if I was nervous. I didn't get nervous until I saw them come out and all line up ready to uh, meet us, if you will. most important moment though is when we turned around with the sign and I saw a legion of people here. And it was just so heartening to see all of these people here, the ones that are ready to get arrested, the ones that are here marching and supporting us. And it just felt powerful. It felt like democracy.
11: Do you think this is the start to them actually listening?
5: We're going to try to get their attention, right? And uh, I think that if they see that we're in their house and that it's not theirs, it's ours, that it might begin to make a difference. So I think this is a very important moment.
2: Move I don't know if my friend knows
12: they're going to get arrested. There's another camera guy in there. He's wearing headphones. He can't hear anything.
2: We are unstoppable! Another world is possible! We are unstoppable!
12: the people come together, that we can change it. We have a voice, and the people who are representing us in politics need to change. They cannot continue to accept corporate money and expect us to stay quiet about it.
5: I had a strange thought as they were handcuffing me. I thought, God, wouldn't it have been great if they did this to the bankers? The guys who committed the fraud that got us the economic crash in 2008, because, you can't help but feel a little embarrassed as they handcuff you. Even though I'm at a moment there where I should be proud—I'm doing civil disobedience and I'm happy to be exercising my First Amendment rights and for a cause that matters the most, getting money out of politics. But even so, as they put your hands behind your back and they, you know, will you out in front of people, it felt a slightly embarrassing. Now, imagine if you're a super-rich banker who committed fraud against your customers. Oh god, they would have been mortified. And they should have been. The whole point is to make sure it doesn't happen again. That's why we prosecute people, right? So I wish it had been the bankers who committed the fraud who were taken out in handcuffs instead of great American citizens that were next to me uh that were protesting their government and the inaction of their government. police actually treated us great Uh, so there was a real uh, friendly attitude and we were had a couple of pro-cop chants there because they're in the 99% too they appreciated that Uh, and this morning as I was getting processed one of the cops was saying man I love the young Turks keep it going they were great When I saw the power of how many people were there, it was amazing. And believe me, there's going to be a point where they can't arrest us all. And that is going to be super powerful. So join us. The more people that are here, the better it is. DemocracySpring.org. And I'll tell you this, you'll never feel better in your life. When you're with those people who love their country and we're fighting to take our democracy back, it doesn't get any better than that.
2: It's coming through a In the air, from those nads in Tiananmen Square. It's coming from the field, that this ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay.
13: According to the advertising analysis group SMG Delta, by the time Florida Senator Marco Rubio dropped out of the presidential race this week, $55 million had been spent on TV ads in support of his campaign. And yet he couldn't even win his home state on Tuesday. In this, he treads the path of this year's other big spending losers, Scott Walker and, of course, Jeb Bush, whose campaign and super PAC spent a total of $82 million on TV ads and quit with zero primary wins to his name. Another week, another example of the counterintuitive way money and advertising is working, or not working. Or maybe... It's working exactly like it's supposed to not work. It's part of what Andrew Coburn in the April Harper's Magazine calls the election industrial complex, in which campaign spending is designed less to elect the candidate than to enrich the campaign consultant class. Mainly, Coburn notes, such spending is accomplished through buying TV ads, which are generally stunningly lame. And don't work
7: because they're actually very hokey they look like what they are which is slapped together in a day or so in some sort of small studio and flung
1: on the air the political class and their pundit buddies say impossible he's too outside the box
2: people really like dad during the next few weeks you'll be seeing a
13: lot of commercials from us
11: when i became governor state government needed to be cut just like my lawn so i got to work
13: one of the things in your article that really struck me is that your gut level instinct that they
7: couldn't possibly work was borne out. That's right. It's very intensively studied. The effect at most is entirely ephemeral. You see an ad on Monday saying so-and-so is going to make the universe great again. On Tuesday, you're asked by a pollster what do you think of so-and-so and you think, oh, he's going to make the universe great again and you say I'm for him. And on Wednesday, you've entirely forgotten the whole effect of that ad has gone away. So these enormous quantities of dollars that are poured into this are almost entirely wasted. I say almost because there are a few narrow spots where perhaps they are worth spending money on. One is when you've got a complete unknown, and the other is at the very last minute, if the election's on the Tuesday, if you dump ads on people's eyeballs on Monday, it may have an effect.
13: So what does work?
7: The ground game or field operations, that's the sort of fancy professional name for it, but it's basically going around and talking to people and not just ringing the bell saying, hi, you're voting for Brooke, thank you very much, goodbye. It's been shown that if you engage people and actually talk to them, the longer the better, turnout shoots up.
13: How do consultants make money off of ads that they don't make off of a ground game?
7: Ah, This is the big secret of the election industrial complex. The way it works is this. Brooke Gladstone is running for higher office, okay? I'm the consultant, and I say, Brooke, we need to do a big buy in the northern part of the state. It's going to cost a million dollars. So the campaign treasurer, and I book time on various TV stations, and the stations send me my commission for having brought them the business, Hmm. In the old days, this was a standard 15%. Wow. You know, no one noticed, I should say, because they were just writing a check for a million dollars and they were told they bought a million dollars worth of ads. And the consultants didn't go out of their way to explain that 15% of that was coming back into their pocket. Then people got a bit wiser and said, well, no, 15%, we're not paying you that. How about 5 6% and so forth? The consultants accepted that, although I've been told, I couldn't document this, there are all sorts of underhanded ways, unbeknownst to the campaign, where you can jack it up, go as high as 30% even today.
13: Election industrial complex, it's a takeoff on... Military-industrial complex.
7: And you see it very clearly, you know, in the defense case, you know, when money gets pumped into a weapon which fails every test visible to all concern but carries on, when 80% or so of the money in the election-industrial complex case gets pumped into something that's self-evidently almost ineffective but enormously profitable for the people who are managing the effort, it's the same thing. You have to think about what the campaign is for. Is it to find the most efficient way of getting the favored candidate elected? Or is it to put money, the more the better, in the pockets of the consultants he has retained to advance his cause? The primary function of the election industrial complex is to look after number one itself.
13: But what about the ground game? Is there some inherent resistance to the ground game other than the fact that the consultants don't make a percentage
7: on it? There's a couple of objections, including the one you just mentioned. There's no real money in it. It's kind of hard work. You have to start very early. You have to recruit volunteers. But there's another problem too, which is the people that you need to do this are by definition pretty committed, the people who go around door to door or make all those phone calls. So they're liable to feel a bit more strongly about issues than you do. That can be kind of awkward. You want to keep control of the message. If you suddenly have to depend on people who have a slightly different view and a more extreme view of what needs to be done than you, you're building up a problem for yourself. So I think there's an instinctive reaction in the machine against going too far. Volunteers are wild cards? They're wild cards. You know, they all defy you to find a candidate or a campaign manager who won't tell you Yeah, the ground game, that's where it's at. You know, we're really putting a huge amount of resources into our field operations. That's the key. then you look at what they spent their money on. It all turns out to be TV all over again.
13: Let's talk about the other aspects of this. With the rise of the super PACs, you've got Mr. and Mrs. Billionaire with their vanity candidates. These people weren't all that big on oversight, Right. And plus, super PACs don't get any.
7: Right. As one consultant said to me, I love super PACs. He says, it's like living under the golden arches. No need to talk to the candidate. No need to talk to the staff. No need to talk to the voters. Just put up a bunch of TV ads and sit back and let the money roll in. Because there's this wonderful legal stipulation about super PACs is that the campaigns aren't allowed to contact them. The 1% or the 1% of 1% or whatever it is, They don't know. It's not their business. They happen to hear about TV commissions, for instance. I can say, well, that's a standard deal, you know. Uh, Of course, this is the way the business operates. Everyone does this 15% or pushing it a bit, 25%. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Mr. Billionaire. You know, so uh, the consultant class loves super PACs for just this reason.
13: Okay, so let's not leave out the media, especially the broadcasters who, in these troubled times, may actually count on campaign spending to keep their stations afloat in the lean years. Do we spy a potential conflict of interest?
7: <laughs> I think one hits a smack dab on the nose. When I talk about the election industrial complex, I definitely include the broadcast industry because that 7 or $8 billion, maybe more, that this election is going to cost, the largest chunk of that will go straight into the pockets of the broadcasters which is why the broadcasters heartily endorse the whole notion of <laughs> big money politics and, you know, excessive spending.
13: Well, they don't necessarily endorse it, but I certainly haven't heard reported in any detail about how ineffective television ads are.
7: You don't hear that, do you? I can't think, why not? <laughs> but when you say they don't endorse it, I mean, they do off camera, so to speak. Les Moonves, the boss of CBS, in 2012, he said super PACs may be bad for the country, but they're certainly good for CBS." <laughs> this year, he said, the more they spend, the better it is for us. Go, Donald. <laughs> but it's interesting because Donald
13: Trump has spent relatively little on his campaign. Only recently has he spent much at all on campaign ads. How does Trump figure into the election industrial complex?
7: Oh, I think if he hadn't been there, they would have wanted to invent him. He's been wonderful for them. He's in a fantastic ratings draw. That's point one. And point two is, of course, all these stop Trumpers are dashing to express themselves in the only way they know how, which is by spending millions of dollars on TV ads denouncing him.
13: With cash rich candidates like Jeb Bush failing so spectacularly, are the donors and campaigns finally? going to wise up?
7: You'd think. But that's what one could have said after 2012. In fact, Karl Rove raised all these hundreds of millions of dollars. And of the people he was trying to get elected, he succeeded once. I mean, one (laughs) congressman. In fact, the donors were so annoyed, one of them even tried to sue him for fraud. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone thought, well, maybe people will wise up. But, you know, this time we got more money than ever pouring in. It's drilled into all of us that elections come at a high price. There's no way round it. You've got to buy scads and scads of TV time and shower the American people with mail in hopes of just getting them to stagger out to the poll and maybe put a cross against your name. You know you
2: spend a lot of money On things that you don't
10: CBS CEO Les Moonves had more to say about the business of politics, reports The Intercept's Lee Fang. Listeners might recall Moonves' December over-revealing about how elections basically just mean dollar signs for him. He was back at it in February, telling a Morgan Stanley conference that what he called this year's electoral circus, quote, may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. That's all I got to say, close quote. Moonvese faints toward inner conflict, quote, this is going to be a very good year for us. Sorry, it's a terrible thing to say, but bring it on, Donald. Go ahead. Keep going, Close quote. Well, he's talking, of course, about the millions and millions of dollars candidates spend on political advertising. As he put it, in local, the number one word is political. And pretend misgivings aside, Moonves underscored that the money comes in no matter the tenor or the impact of events. The money's rolling in, and this is fun, he says, adding, quote, they're not even talking about issues. They're throwing bombs at each other, and I think the advertising reflects that. Most of the ads are not about issues. They're sort of like the debates, close quote. Those would be the debates that Moonves Corporation helps produce. Well, the CBS CEO says he doesn't want his cheering on of Trump to be seen as endorsement. Quote, I'm not taking any side. I'm just saying for us, economically, Donald's place in this election is a good thing. Close quote. So it's a good thing that makes him chuckle like a Bond villain, but he's not endorsing it. It isn't really hilarious for a media executive to celebrate how he's profiting from phenomena that he thinks are socially harmful. It sort of sounds like a violation of the 16 TV and 117 radio station licenses CBS holds, which state, quote, the licensee shall, during the term of this license, render such broadcasting service as will serve the public interest, convenience, or necessity, to the full extent of the privileges herein conferred. Close quote. Well, the FCC has progressively lowered the standard broadcasters have to meet to fulfill their public interest requirements. But as long as there's any kind of standard, surely the money's rolling in and this is fun doesn't meet it.
0: the The cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
8: The Democracy Spring protest in D.C. yesterday accomplished one of its main goals, and that is demonstrating broad support for uh, radically reforming the way we do campaign finance uh, in this country. And it did that by bringing people together from the right and from the left to uh, demonstrate in D.C. to be willing to be arrested, another goal that also worked out. We'll have the details for that in just a second. However, it didn't accomplish one of its goals, and that is getting the mainstream media to actually pay attention to this and to recognize that people overwhelmingly want change. And so we'll have those uh, stats for you as well. But first, on the arrests, and we have a fault video from Jenk, who was one of the people who was arrested yesterday, uh, it took more than six hours for police to arrest the protesters, of which more than 400 were arrested yesterday, and I'm hearing about 100 today. Uh, Those who chose to sit in on the Capitol steps, they were taken in zip tie handcuffs into large buses to be taken away and processed. And to give you an idea of the the breadth of people who were willing to be arrested uh, for this movement, you have protest campaign director Kai Newkirk, head of the activist group 99 Rise. We've covered their actions a few times. Uh, He was among the arrested. Uh, others included the online news personality Cenk Uger, criminal justice reform advocate Michael A. Wood uh, Jr., Progressive Change Campaign Committee co-founder Adam Green, and former California Secretary of State candidate Derek Cressman. And we have a quote from Alex Lawson, Social Security Works executive director, about the action yesterday, saying, what you're seeing right now is a massive change in the conversation around money and politics, and I think that we are at the Capitol making it so visible that so many people are willing to risk arrest. This is something that elected officials cannot be on the wrong side of. But to the extent that they can't be on the wrong side of it, it has to do with how much uh, coverage this actually gets. Right. And this is the frustrating part. Because I looked all over the web, and uh, to their credit, some sites covered it to varying degrees. Uh, Places like Vice, RT, Huffington Post had a lot of information about it on their Mm -hmm. website. So they get credit for that. Uh, CNN, Washington Times, MSNBC, and Fox News, they did have stories about it. Um, But that's basically about where it stopped. So, while the action dubbed uh, hashtag Democracy Spring garnered uh, wide coverage on social media, over 136,000 tweets, during daytime and afternoon news segments, CNN did not devote any coverage to the actions on their actual TV side. MSNBC mentioned the protests for approximately 12 seconds, while Fox News mentioned the arrests and discussed the protests for around 17 seconds. So look at Fox News leading the way there. Although they probably were not uh, getting a
6: positive spin to it. Right, it's because they stuttered. That's why they went there. It took a while. Season.
8: It took a little while yeah. longer. Yeah, actually. One of the graphics didn't come up, and so they had to wait a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, MSNBC and Fox News not only provided minimal coverage, but hosts on both networks misrepresented the protests, claiming they were narrowly focused only on voting rights issues. Oh, which, for really? the record, is not narrow. That's really important, too. Uh, the protests were widely covered by C-SPAN, Al Jazeera, and NPR. And so thank uh, thank you to The Intercept for doing that uh, media analysis.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: And so, look, a lot of people got arrested. And many people will hear about it from the coverage that it did get. But it's interesting that if you protest outside of a mosque, you know, or an Islamic community center, they'll cover it for days. If a plane goes missing, well, that shut down for a month. Um, but when people want to rescue American democracy, 12 seconds because- or zero.
14: This goes further than rescuing American democracy. It goes to our media and how it's corrupted by the exact same entities that corrupt our politicians. Corporate media is funded by corporate sponsors. That's why it's referred to as corporate media. So do they have any type of incentive or interest in covering a protest that not only calls out these politicians and a corrupt political system, but also calls out the media for their corruption? Okay. When you have... BP or or some major corporations, when you have corporations that aren't even trying to sell you something advertising on these major networks, they're not doing it because they want to improve sales. A lot of these companies don't even have anything to do with selling a product they want to ensure that these media outlets don't criticize them because you yeah. don't want to bite the hand that feeds. So yeah.
6: so instead of that advertising money being used to fund investigations, right. that advertising money is being used to fund non-investigations. Yeah. It's being used to squelch any in- investigative instinct that they might have in their news division. Yeah. So, let so let me, and let, and we also before I said, they don't the reason why this isn't getting covered the March and the protest to get money out of politics is because when money's in politics, all the people who we want to cover it make more money. Yeah, They all make more money. This is, we've heard Les Moonves chair this on. Even the rise of Donald Trump, which he admitted was bad for our country, but it's good for CBS. So that's yeah. why this isn't getting any coverage. We're covering it, of course, and there's a couple of places online covering it. But the, they, this would it directly affect their bottom line, and like I always say, about their hosts at MSNBC, they're all good people, what have you, but they, it's obvious they haven't said anything that would affect Comcast's bottom line, because as soon as they do, they'll be fired. Like, yeah. Ed Schultz was fired, and Phil Donahue, and a host of others.
8: Yeah. Yeah, also, just, uh, really fast, I want to give credit also to uh, sites like Alternet and Raw Story, who also covered it. Yeah, um, I just sort of expect that they will. So But what's the
14: difference between all the media outlets that you listed that did do some coverage of this protest and the media outlets that didn't do any coverage or did a tiny amount of coverage? I mean, Raw Story, um, NPR, the way that they're funded is very different from yeah. the way that MSNBC or CNN is funded yeah. or well, Fox News.
8: Look, these big economic interests, have, they've got to start advertising on these blogs <laughs> if they want to get them in line. Uh, and how about this? So we, we've said many times, uh, CNN obviously has no interest in even asking about reforming campaign finance since so many of those dollars go into ads. And the fear is that if you get money out of politics, then, then they won't buy the ads. So here's a solution. So when we get the public financing, every dollar has to be spent on cable news advertising. That way it's a win-win, I guess. So you and know I don't what? actually, believe that.
6: there used to be uh, there used to be that thing they call about the metaphorical firewall between the news division and the rest of the money making operation at news. Like the companies. advertising division, yeah. Right. The advertising and there they wouldn't didn't they so, so they could have their journalistic integrity, right? Well mm-hmm. that's all gone now because now the news division has to turn a profit, right? And every. So what we, it's funny, I was watching uh, one of my videos at youtube.com slash the Jimmy door Show, and I was
8: noticing. We need a firewall between your on-air personality and your concern for your channel's growth. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
6: They literally have a pro-fracking commercial. Have you seen these on YouTube? Oh pro-fracking yes. commercials that they're running. Yeah. And I'm like, on my fucking video. People say, well, you're getting money from the fracking people because that commercial is playing on. Yeah, but guess what? I'm taking using that money for to fight against fracking. Yeah, which is kind of ironic. That's the beauty of how some ca- some capitalism is working. Today. That's what Hillary says about Wall Street, that, though. She says that is what she except says. There's no firewall. That's so that's idea. the beauty that. of what we can do here that we yeah. can't do anywhere else. Jenk also did a video that talked about the corruption and offshoring, corporations offshoring their money. And Google was one of the companies he talked about. So he does have complete complete editorial freedom yeah. here. That is the big difference. That's true.
8: Yes. Well, thank you for bringing up Cenk because we actually want to go. We have some uh, video from Cenk uh, about the protest, about what it means uh, to him. Uh, so let's
5: uh, roll that so you got to come join us man this democracy spring thing is real civil disobedience is real uh and i know it's frustrating that a lot of the establishment media didn't cover it the largest arrest in capital history and they don't think that's newsworthy that's insane and part of the problem is and this is really important guys we did it right and the cops thanked us for being so peaceful and doing civil disobedience right and they were very good to us but the problem was it didn't bleed that was one of the problems if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. That is an implicit way the media encourages violence, right? Uh, so if you do it the right way, they're like, oh, that's boring. Just an enormous amount of Americans. And remember, the number of people pro, uh, arrested were a small fraction of the overall protest, right? An enormous amount of Americans come in and protest because they're so worried about how bad corruption is in our government. No big deal. Like, but if somebody had gotten a baton over the head and was bleeding or had pushed a cop, right? They'd be like, Oh my god, look at this, the protesters, the radicals, they're rioting, and then they would have covered it. Positive coverage you're almost never gonna get. Negative coverage, the mainstream media is more than happy to give you.
2: To my time.
12: We brought you on to talk a bit about the Democracy Spring, which was a civil um, civil disobedience actions with uh, more than 100 progressive groups um, supporting these actions to reduce the influence of money in politics and strengthen the right to vote. This began with a 140-mile march from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., and police actually arrested more than 400 protesters on the steps of the Capitol building, and you were part of this, so Social Security Works was one of the um, organizations that signed on to be part of Democracy Spring, and you attended the protests. Um, Can you give us a bit of uh, your insider view on the ground of what what was going on and, and what these protests were about?
9: Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would add just to the setup is that it is actually still an ongoing protest. It's continuing today, uh, and it will go through the end of the week in escalating series of civil disobedience. Uh, and then there's a component that continues in D.C. Uh, and goes back out to the country. So this is really trying to build a movement. Um, but the specific mass civil disobedience is continuing today and for the rest of the week. Um, it's a really powerful thing that's happening right now. So Social Security Works, we fight to protect and expand Social Security. Um, and, you know, we talk about that a lot. And you know, uh, that uh, I oftentimes let people know who are our opponents. They're greedy liars on Wall Street. Um, it is greedy liars on Wall Street. Who I laugh,
12: want, but it's true.
9: It's true. Yeah. Who want to steal our money uh, in the form of cutting our Social Security benefits. Those greedy liars on Wall Street, the main, uh, strategy they have for getting their way is corrupting the political process with their money. They, there are not that many greedy liars on Wall Street. Numerically, we're far superior. We the people are far superior. But they've got incredible Amounts of money, so they can make business decisions like spending three hundred million dollars to lobby against uh, Glass Steagall. Right? They can spend enormous sums of money, three hundred million dollars in that particular case, which then lead to billions of dollars of profit. Right? That is a that's one example, but there are very clear uh, in policy. Lingo iron triangles, where it's even more straightforward corruption, right? Where you have actually uh, industries who get contracts from the government, who are spending money to get certain people elected, uh, to make sure that certain staff members uh, are involved in the process of creating laws and appropriations, and that the money keeps going back to them um, and capturing government. So I think. Most everybody is really familiar with all of the corrupting ways that money works in politics. Um, one thing i just like to point out, one of the ones that is less familiar, but actually incredibly powerful um, and very insidious is limiting their liability. So if big money power can get the government to actually limit their liability, like big oil, right? How come big oil can basically destroy an ecosystem? Right? They can destroy an ecosystem that whose, whose cost is billions of dollars, but they pay a pittance, right? right? They pay a tiny little fine and sometimes they can even write that fine off. Um, that's, that is the corrupting power of money in our politics. All of that is just the setup to say, Although we fight to protect and expand social security, all of our folks, so we email uh, a million people and say, we want to participate in this action, Democracy Spring. And the response from our activists was overwhelming. Because we understand that the greedy liars on Wall Street, if we can lessen their, their ability to buy political power, um, then people power will obviously win the day. Now, I'm a huge optimist. So I think people power will win the day regardless. Um, it can take a while. Uh, But we will win because we have the people. But this is definitely one of those steps to achieve victory is to lessen the power of money in politics.
12: And actually, I I have to point out that um, Alex is a new father. And he showed me a picture before the show of his adorable son (laughs) with his stuffed animal sloth named Justice, which I think is the perfect (laughs) um, representation of that. Justice is slow, but it, it will come about. But with, with the actions that Democracy Spring, um, is, is, is putting on, because it is an ongoing movement, obviously I think there's, um, uh, uh, this is a moment where a lot of people are concerned about these issues. You see this in the, um, groundswell of support that has, um, uh, thrust, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, um, neck and neck with, um, Uh, Secretary Clinton, who had been the presumptive nominee. Um, You see this to a certain extent with the fact that uh, Donald Trump saying that he's not being backed by money he's funding himself is resonating with people. I don't mean to compare Trump and Sanders, but this is something that is of a big concern to people. Um, Do you think that this will make justice come faster? Given the fact that there's a Congress that is, puts up roadblocks for everything.
9: It's, it's true about Congress. Um, so I have a – sometimes justice like the sloth <laughs> takes a really long time. Um, if you look in history, in 1776, there was a huge movement to abolish slavery. It was, it was very close because the ideals of liberty that our country was founded on were obviously anathema to uh, chattel slavery, a great macro sin of America, right? They didn't, they didn't work together. It was a huge movement, movement, and it almost happened. But the forces of entrenched power and money uh, at that time won, and it didn't happen for another hundred years and a civil war later that actually slavery was abolished in America. So sometimes things move very slowly, but all along the way, there was people fighting. And that is my, that's an important understanding for me of how history works. It is not those big inflection points that you focus on, it's that literally from before the birth of our nation, There were people fighting against the institution of slavery, knowing that they might not get rid of it until after they were gone, but they knew they had a moral commitment to it. Um, And I I feel like that concept of justice is important to to keep in mind. The struggle, the ongoing organized resistance, you, you have to be okay with the fact that you might never see the victory. And you have to understand that your moral belief in fighting for justice means even if you're not going to see that victory, um, you brought up my my new kid, uh, Xander, I want him to see the victory. I want him to know that I did everything I could uh, to fight against what I see as a retrograde motion in our democracy where the people are losing some of their power to the wealthy few. Um, and we've seen this throughout history, right? I mean, it's not like this is a new struggle. The few um, hoovering up all of the resources and power at the expense of the, of, of the many is literally history, right? You can go back um, to ancient Greece, if you want, and see the same struggles. Um, so I think, is this a Congress that's not going to let some things happen? They're going to try their hardest, but all they can do is throw up roadblocks to the unconquerable power of the people. All power resides in the people and with the people. So when the people's voices are raised to a level, um, when the people are activated to a level where they are demanding action, it is the unstoppable force. Um, And so, you know, at a point... This is a circuitous answer to your question, no, this Tracy. this is great. But the the thing is, at a point, the members of Congress, like you, you've we've seen it in 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 just the past few years. You've seen things that you know were never going to happen, just like a flash. Once once the the uh, the people moved, the uh, elected officials caught up with them. So equality for the LGBT community was one where. In my lifetime, uh, very easily in my adult lifetime, I can remember when this was never going to happen, when when marriage equality was never going to happen. And then all of a sudden, it's like, of course it's going to happen. It's a good example to look at, though, because does that mean that it's over? No. There's an ongoing struggle always. Um, so I think what Democracy Spring is showing is that this is that a huge cross-section, because there were, this was not a partisan thing. Uh, There were folks across the political spectrum who were taking part in Democracy Spring. And they all saw that our nation works when there is one person, one vote, right? When the amount of money in your bank account does not give you more of a voice uh, than just a person uh, who is a citizen and has a voice in this country. That's we're seeing a uh, hundred organizations involved, uh, four hundred people on the first day risked arrest. Uh, it was the, the largest uh, civil disobedience, according to the Capitol Police. That was the most people who's ever who have ever risked arrest in acts of civil disobedience um, on the Hill. So that was that's profound, and and you know it matters, and you know this. That it was on the Hill because all the staffers and bosses and everything, they're looking out their windows and like, what is that? Oh, that's money in politics is they, they put their finger up in the air and they say, is this something that we should be vocally against, be quiet on or be vocally for? Right. Like those are their options. And they really do care about the perception.
0: We just heard clips featuring Big Bad Boris on YouTube with their commercial for Congressman's Warehouse, last week tonight with John Oliver discussing the Cold War of Congressional Fundraising, the Young Turks with highlights from the Civil Disobedience Action at Democracy Spring in Washington, D.C., On the Media talked through the nuts and bolts of the election industrial complex. Counterspin highlighted how the big media companies are at cross-purposes with what is actually good for America thanks to the millions spent on advertising during campaign food fights. The Young Turks discussed the totally unsurprising media blackout of the Democracy Spring protest. And finally, Talk Poverty Radio spoke with Alex Lawson, the executive director of Social Security Works, about taking the long view on the fight against money in politics. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you
15: hi this is gabriel from pittsburgh i'm calling in response to the voicemail played on the most recent episode uh about voting strategy and a series of change. and it struck me just listening to it how many people just think voting is about winning this current election and especially the woman there's like the, the last um voicemail played talking about how third-party votes are wasted but There is the future past this election that the people who are focused on the third parties are really thinking about. You know, if Jill Stein was elected this November, she wouldn't know what to do with herself. She, I seriously doubt she has any plans on moving into the White House, but she still wants you to vote for her because there are big milestones for getting uh, representation in multiple ways for reaching a certain percentage of the vote. You know, to get on future ballots, to get access to public funding for candidates, to get access to public appearance as legitimate. And, and so those things are really important for, for the third parties. So like, no, they're not going to win this election, but they're trying to build a momentum, they're trying to build a movement And that's important because despite how many people say that, you know, America is a two-party country, America has rules that have been gerrymandered to support these existing two parties. We've had a lot more than just Democrats and Republicans over the course of our history. Like, remember the Whigs from history class? Democrats and uh, Republicans are essentially private clubs. They aren't government bodies. Despite how much of they've been integrated into the system by themselves, it's really no different than how you know state level, uh, you know counties are gerrymandered to support Republicans, even in you know supposedly blue states. And so I think there's more strategy to voting than just like making sure a Republican isn't winning this next election. Now you remember that like after Obama won. In 2008, we had huge majorities of Democrats in the Senate and in the House, and we passed a couple important things. That those, those first two years, um, you know, the led Ledbetter Fair Pay Act and student loan refinancing and Obamacare. And but then in 2010, the Republicans had a big sweep. We lost the supermajority and we lost the majority in the House, and things haven't gotten better since then. And. A big part of that is, at least as a part of the perception of it. And when you're talking about like voter turnout and how people are voting and talking about the election, perception is pretty important is that, you know, the enthusiasm for democratic policies went out after the election season. And that's what I'm worried about if we nominate Hillary Clinton and if we elect Hillary Clinton, that what's going to happen in, in 2018? Are we just going to have another big Republican sweep? We've lost hundreds of seats. Republicans over the last you know, well, basically every single election. We're losing dozens. And that's a trend that needs stopping. And that's not a trend that you can stop with just winning one election. And I would encourage everybody to really think hard about that. And especially like about their local politics and what the circumstances are there. Alright, thanks. Bye.
11: Hey, JM and the left. This is Ryan from Phoenix. I wanted to call and just uh, thank Alex for that uh, good analogy about the trolley and the train tracks. I think that does kind of uh, frame the issue for me too. And uh, I appreciate the analogy one, because it gives us a fresh perspective and kind of reanalyze all these variables that are at play. So with every variable, there's a kind of an analogy within this analogy that works, right? So, so far we have the train down the tracks and the person that, and you being the voter at the switch. The train at the tracks. well, one, we have to realize that there's more trains behind this train and what can we do to prepare for the next train? So if we are going to pull the switch and get down to one out of four, rather than all four, then let's make sure that the next train coming down the tracks even does a better job at saving lives than just three of four. And so to kind of follow that analogy, if sacrificing four out of four puts us in a better position somehow, if you can make that argument that that sacrificing four out of four puts us in a better position to prepare for the next train coming down the track so they don't continue to constantly peg off one out of four uh, time and time again, uh, in the long run that's going to be more devastating in the aggregate toll death toll. So If people can make that argument, I'm not saying that that I do, but if you can make that argument, then you can justify not pulling the switch. Other components being the switch. So the switch being the voting mechanism. So we can look at the switch and we can modify the switch. We can look at this, uh, you know, primary system and we we can all agree that it's not very democratic and that needs to be retooled. And then we can look at the official ballot itself. And this one person, one vote, simple coloring in one bubble or, or punching one hole, and that being the end of your vote, that's not a really great system either. What about a runoff system? There's all these different mechanisms that we can look at modifying that switch and making that switch more effective so that it gives us more tracks, gives the gives us more options on how to affect this change, the route that this train is going to go. So. Thank you, Alex, for this analogy, and I hope that, you know, me building upon it uh, helps other listeners. Thanks.
4: Hey, Jay, it's Wade. You know, I've heard a lot of, of comments, or read a lot on the Internet this, this, this primary season, and and there's a, there's a lot of ridiculous fear out there. I referenced the last call to your show last week, and to people like that, and, and that person's not alone, To people like that, I say, you're having a profound misreading on politics. If you think that a Ted Cruz presidency is actually going to end your life, then why the hell do you support big government to begin with? Why do you want the government to be even even more powerful? If you really believe that Donald Trump or Ted Cruz is actually going to kill you, then you don't really believe in our system of government then. So I don't even know why you're in the political process to begin with. What I'm trying to say is it's just a presidential election, people. And my side did the same thing when Obama was elected. We were all supposed to be communists by now. You know, y'all remember. It didn't happen. It won't happen. I am not going to vote for the president this year. And my theory of change is this. Wherever there's a void, a politician will step in and take advantage of those people and those votes. And I'm hoping... That over time, a third party, maybe even a fourth party, will rise to take advantage of this. I think the mass media is losing a lot of power. I think that Facebook, Twitter, and the fact that there's not as many cable and dish subscribers as there used to be, and that number will continue to grow, including myself, I don't believe that, that they have the power that they used to have. And therefore, the hold that the Democrat and Republican parties have on the media will slowly over time weaken and this will give rise to a third party and I'm trying to send the message that I don't support either of them and I'll give you a a great example when y'all voted for Obama did you think in a million years that he would ever support something like the TPP of course not and Clinton says she doesn't now and if you believe that then you're you're hopelessly lost. There's no way around a TPP. None. Whatsoever. So, who do I vote for? And the TPP will affect everybody. No matter your race. No matter your sexual preference. No matter what gender you prefer today. Nothing will save you from the TPP. No politician. It affects everybody. So who do I vote for? Who? Now, this is where I'm at in politics. It's just is one issue. I'm, I'm tired of the two-party system. I found myself not along with the second caller from last week's show. That's the guy I found to be the most inspiring. I believe, I, I agree with him. And my theory of change is hopefully to create enough of a void that somebody will, will look at that and say, my God, there's a lot of people out here that are really pissed at both parties. I can take advantage of this. That's my hope. That's my theory. That's who. I, that's what I'm doing. I'll vote for everybody else, but not the president. Anyway, Jay, have a good one.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, today I want to thank Ryan from Phoenix for his help on uh, the activism in the last episode. He has sort of made himself our resident local land use policy expert, so I asked him for and received help on putting together our gentrification activism, but then I forgot to mention it. So thanks for your help, Ryan. And also, we heard from him today, and I liked his sort of expansion of the trolley dilemma. And I would say that the next carriage coming down the track that we need to be ready for is uh, one, two, or possibly three Supreme Court justices who have an unbelievable amount of power to decide who lives and who dies. So that's where I think the metaphor becomes reality. and uh, But I'll get into more of that later. Now for Gabriel in Pittsburgh, who he was the first one we heard from. He said that he's supporting the Green Party, wants to build momentum. His strategy is, you know, we need to look to the future and, you know, build up a, a party like the Green Party, break free of the two-party system. I think all of that is great, but it's super nebulous. It's just really unclear. And I'm not hearing an actual concrete theory of change from that. So, okay, the Green Party gets more support, they get public funding, and then what? Like, follow that logic and make your actual case. I'm doing this because I want for this and this and this to happen. Still super vague on that point. But what he also pointed out was that, you know, we elected Obama and then things were like kind of sort of okay for a little while because a couple of reasonable things got done. But, you know, then the Republicans came in and we lost a bunch of seats. And of course he said we, and I don't say we because I'm not a Democrat, but whatever. The Democrats lost a bunch of seats. The Republicans got in. They're breaking records, blocking everything any any progressive person would want to do. And so, yes, that's true enough, but that's only half the story. That That's saying like, well, we got a Democrat in office and things didn't even happen that were that good, so what's the point? But that completely skips over everything that didn't happen during what would have been a McCain presidency, not to mention a Sarah Palin vice presidency. So if McCain had been president... One super concrete example is that there would have been a far higher likelihood that we would have gone to war with Iran— So for the sake of this conversation, I want to make super clear that I'm not even coming at this from a we-have-to-prevent-bad-things-from-happening sort of mentality that ends up scaring people into voting for terrible, wishy-washy, corporatist Democrats. I am actually looking at this from a strategic, brass-tax theory of how to push for fundamental change in our corporate-owned two-party rule that screws over everyone but the super-rich. Under the Bush administration, there was a huge progressive and democratic pushback to Republican policies and wars, but that's where all of our political energy went. If people had to choose between going to an anti-war rally and a rally to build up the Green Party to the point where it gets election matching funds, everyone was going to go to the anti-war rally, because that's where the urgent need was at the time. And that is just a simple division of resources problem. Now, under the Obama administration, lots of progressives have been super pissed off for a long time, but we've been able to sort of expand beyond just trying to stop bad things from happening. We're organizing things like Occupy Wall Street and Wolfpack and Democracy Spring and a worldwide climate movement that's starting to build up a little momentum. Now, I promise you, under a Republican president who threatens to do absolutely ridiculous things the way Bush did and the way Ted Cruz and Donald Trump are both promising to do, all of the progressive energy will get redirected away from pushing for fundamental change and will instead be completely used up by trying desperately to stick our fingers in the leaky dike, hoping desperately that... You know, it doesn't break before we have a chance to get another Democrat in office. That is exactly what happened under Bush, and that is why so many people thought, completely wrongly, that all of their problems would be magically solved once Obama was elected. They thought it was just a a problem of which party was in power. People get tricked into thinking that it's just a matter of the party in office. But since we've had Obama in office for eight years, and things aren't that much better now than they were— it's starting to dawn on people that we actually need fundamental change. And that's what Bernie Sanders is tapping into. And that's why he's so popular right now. So if you're concerned about building political power to make fundamental change, then I simply do not see how not doing everything in one's power to prevent a Republican president from taking office can fit into your theory of change. Because that's not just going to be a setback policy-wise, or maybe we'll go to a war and kill a bunch of people. I'm not even talking about the moral side. I'm saying, politically, a Republican being in office doesn't inspire people to revolution. It inspires people to just elect a Democrat. That's it. They, they get tricked into thinking, all we need is a Democrat, and then all of these Republican-made problems will go away, which is not the case. And now on to Wade. Man, sometimes Wade says things, and I'm like... I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. First of all, a few weeks ago, some other callers were getting in trouble because they responded not to what Wade actually said, but to what they sort of assumed he meant. Because he's a conservative and he says conservative things, they took what he said way further than he meant it. And they got some pushback from that and, you know, Wade was pissed off about it. So I really thought that he would be more careful about not doing the exact same thing. And then today he calls in and in response to a trans woman who pointed out the obvious truth that Republican politicians pose an actual risk to her health and safety because they want to criminalize her ability to use the restroom. Absolutely stoking the possibility of violence being done against her, among a whole lot of other policies that are explicitly anti-trans, a concern that is absolutely real, deadly real, as shown by stats of murder and assault rates against trans people. And Wade hears that, and his interpretation, apparently, is that this caller believes that a Republican president would be some sort of militant dictator or something who would murder their own citizens. And, like, that's not even a leap in logic that he's making. That's just total disconnection, no idea where it's coming from, no interest in listening to what people are actually saying. Hence, my disappointment. Secondly, I was really surprised to hear him imply, more or less, that the president doesn't really matter that much, especially when it comes to who lives and who dies. For those of you who don't know... Wade was a Marine who served in our most recent escapades in the Middle East, and I I don't really think he needs me to point this out, but I'm going to say it anyways, that I can draw a line as straight as a fucking arrow between the election of George W. Bush in 2000 and the deaths of some of Wade's friends, or if not direct friends, then at least his brothers-in-arms in those wars. I mean, if Al Gore had been elected, I think it is indisputable to say that he wouldn't have lied us into war in Iraq and thousands of Americans and Iraqis would still be alive today. And if he wants more death, if Al Gore had been elected, then it is obvious that John Roberts and Sam Alito wouldn't be on the Supreme Court right now, and when the Obamacare lawsuit made it all the way to the Supreme Court, they would not have struck down the mandate for states to expand their Medicaid budgets with federal dollars, and millions more people would have health insurance right now, some of whom I promise you have died in the past few years due to lack of access to affordable health care, and I'm sure many of them died cursing Obamacare when they should have been cursing John Roberts, George W. Bush, and the Republican governors of their states for blocking them from being able to access the health care that Obama and that policy was trying to supply. And don't even get me wrong, Wade and I even agree that single-payer is the obvious solution that needs to be implemented, but that doesn't detract from the fact that those lives were lost due to that presidential election and the Supreme Court justices who were appointed and will continue to serve for decades to come. And that doesn't even get us to Citizens United. So, yes, Many people have a vision of a future that involves you know, hoping we will break out of our two-party system, and I can certainly commiserate with that. And not only do I commiserate with it, I wholeheartedly encourage everyone to do whatever it is within their power to make that change, and many other structural changes happen. Just remember that you have a limited number of resources. You have a limited amount of energy, a limited amount of time, and a limited number of votes for you to cast, and you should devise a theory of change that puts all of your resources to their very best and most productive use that does the most good and the least harm. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there.
2: stories and wonder why we're missing